this is episode 52 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and today we are back with Pam Holland. Uh, we had Pam on back for episodes 47 and 48 with her wonderful grad students, and she had a few undergrads too from Marshall University, but this time we're going to actually talk with Pam about what she's good at, and that's supervision, and it, it's funny to hear Pam say that she never thought she would want to specialize in supervision, but we are so glad that she is here to talk to us about it today because I know, you know, that a lot of us want to get into helping to supervise grad students and teach them what we know, and heck, we know that they have a lot to teach us too, so, and I think sometimes we just don't really know where to start with that collaboration, so Pam's here to help us get on the right path with that. And Pam Holland graduated from Marshall University in 1995, worked in a variety of settings in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio before returning to Marshall in 2002. Her role shifted to tenure-track faculty in 2004. She became the Director of Clinical Education in 2006. She founded the MU Feeding and Swallowing Clinic in 2013 and specializes in pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. In addition to supervising graduate students in the feeding and swallowing clinic and providing feeding therapy via telepractice, she carries a small caseload in birth to three. Most recently, she joins a multi-agency coalition called Healthy Connections to help improve outcomes for children diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome. She has applied for board certification in swallowing and swallowing disorders in March of 2018. And as Director of Clinical Education, she was a lead team member in the College of Health Professions Interprofessional Education Initiative. Her research interests include interprofessional education and collaboration and pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. She presented the results of her survey, Feeding and Swallowing Disorders in the Schools, at the 2018 ASHA Convention. She is currently an Associate Professor and the Director of Clinical Education and teaches a graduate course in Swallowing Disorders at Marshall University. So without further ado, here is Pam. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, Pam. Hello, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. It's good to talk to you again. <laughs> good to talk to you again as well. We have Pam Holland back with us, and I'll let her fill you in a little bit in a minute on who she is, but she was back with us for episodes 47 and 48 with her wonderful students. So I know everyone really enjoyed those two episodes, um, just what students and grad students can contribute to our profession and to us and really help us with some things. So that's kind of really what we're going to talk about today. But um, go ahead, Pam, and give a little more blurb about yourself. Okay, great. Uh, well, um, my name is Pam Holland, and um, never in my wildest dreams did I ever say, I want to specialize in supervision. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, I never, when I was in grad school, did I say, I want to be the clinic director, and I want to make sure that all students get great experiences. Um, but that's where I've kind of fallen. It's where my path and my profession has led me. Um, so I, I teach at Marshall University. I am the director of clinical education, um, director of clinical education uh, within the Department of Communication Disorders. And I'm an associate professor and I teach the graduate dysphagia course. <clears throat> Before coming to Marshall, um, I was like many other SLPs. I was the, fortunate enough to work when I first uh, uh, graduated back in 2005. That's a long time ago. Um, uh, actually, I didn't graduate in 2005. I graduated in 1995. How, how crazy is that? I, I, I mean, you know, okay, so now I, I realize I have dementia. So I graduated. I'm really, I'm trying to pretend like I'm young and I'm not. You're um, but I graduated with my master's in uh, 1995 and um, was fortunate enough to work at a, a, a Easter Seals uh, facility. And so we contracted uh, with lots of different agencies. And I saw everything from pediatrics to geriatrics. And that was, um, I was very fortunate for that. Um, I came back to Marshall 
2002. That's where the 2000s came in. 2002, um, started there as a part-time uh, clinician uh, with the Scottish Rite program. Um, it was a new uh, collaboration that the university had with the Scottish Rite Masons and um, started there part-time. Ended up going full-time. Uh, then people retired and I started teaching, even though I didn't want to teach because I love being a clinician. Um, then people left to go get their doctorate and the director of clinical education was open. And I said, sure, I'll do it if I don't have to work 12 months a year and blah, 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 blah. And so I find myself several years later um, at the university, kind of knee deep in academia. So um, actually neck deep in academia. So a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about today um, are not things that uh, we think about a lot after we graduate. So we're going to throw all sorts of acronyms out and uh, talk a little bit about why even after you graduate, those types of things are really important. Um, and I think my favorite thing about working at a university is, of course, the students. Um, you know, a lot of people can talk about the millennials or Gen X's or whatnot and what, what they don't bring to the table. But um, I find the exact opposite that students have so much to offer. And as someone who's responsible for placing students in their clinical rotations, um, I'm often found in my, I find myself in conversations where, where uh, SLPs will say, you know, I'd love to take a student, but I just can't. Um, particularly if they're in acute care, um, because it's fast paced, they have productivity that they have to, to uh, manage and meet, and they, they, students slow us down. And we all know that if you've ever taken a student, um, it's a lot more work. Uh, if you ever take a student because you think it's going to make your job easier, <clears throat> you're taking it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> you're, you're not in it for the, for the reason that you need to be in it. Um, and so it does. There are challenges uh, in taking a student, particularly. Uh, with the discipline that your podcast is about, and that is dysphagia. Uh, yes. Uh, because yes. I think that students are, are most nervous about taking the dysphagia course because it's a, something that we can um, uh, interfere or have a negative effect on a person's life, and they, th that ner makes them nervous. And I think for supervisors, it's the same thing. I don't want to take a student because I'm responsible for this patient. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that that can be a challenge for a lot of SLPs that are brilliant speech therapists and are so good at what they do with regards to dysphagia. Um, but they just, they don't want, they don't have the time. And um, uh, hopefully what I'm going to do today is share with them the benefits that uh, they yes. may reap. <laughs> yes. Taking yes. a student, even if your, your entire caseload is just patients with dysphagia. And then yes. you're, you're on the acute care floor and you're walking fast and you're going from one ICU to, you know, the NICU and whatnot. Um, I, I think that um, I, I'm here to tell you that they have a lot to offer. So, <laughs> and, that, and that's why I'm so glad when you offered to talk about this topic, Pam, because I think I, and I know for me, like I would love to take students and I know people ask me all the time, would you consider taking a student? And it's always like, yes, but. Right. I don't really know where to begin, you know, and, and like the things you're going to talk about, I don't know what requirements are. I don't know what they're expecting from me. I don't know what I'm expecting from them. So I think, I think a lot of, you know, we're SLPs. We want to help people. <laughs> I think a lot of us want to take students and we want to be able to foster these SLPs into be, being these passionate therapists that are passionate about dysphagia. But I think a lot of us just don't know where to start. So Right. And, <laughs> and there are a lot of requirements for supervisors yeah. and they're, and it's like anything else. Um, I think it's practicing in our field is becoming more challenging because we have to do more with less. Um, and supervision is, is similar to that, but hopefully um, uh, if anybody's listening and thinking about uh, supervising that they can take the resources that I'm going to give them today, contact their university and just start the process. So sounds good. <laughs> All right. So where should we start? Pam? All right. We're going to start with some acronyms like the CAA, the CFCC, ASHA, and I'm going to even throw out CAPSA there. And so um, we all know about competencies. And I think anybody, whether you graduated recently or you graduated a while ago, um, you know um, the standards for certification, uh, what you have to meet to apply for your C's, um, 
and um, the outcomes that you have to meet. And the university is really good about making sure that that is achieved. But the Council for Clinical Certification in Audiology and Speech-Language Pathology is really something, um, is, it's uh, affiliated with ASHA, and it is the agency that defines, applies, and withdraws, as well as maintains certification. So most of us out there practicing now know what we have to do to maintain certification. But from a student perspective, um, this actually begins at the undergraduate level. So the CFCC dictates standards that students have to meet in order to be qualified to apply for certification. So we're talking statistics, we're talking biological sciences, um, we're talking uh, chemistry or physics, and the universities kind of directs that, make sure that the students meet those requirements. Um, and so... Um, the CFCC is something that we all need to be aware of because, number one, we have to apply for certification and we have to meet those requirements. Um, and um, uh, we have to maintain those, those requirements. So we know what CEUs we have to obtain. Um, we have to pay the fee at the end of the year. All those great things. Um, and anybody who has, you know, taken a uh, kind of taken a, a break from uh, being an SLP and decided to be a stay-at-home mom or, you know, they think, oh, I don't think I'll ever have to work again, so I'm not going to really renew this. And then they decide that they're going to. Um, and then they realize that the standards for certification have changed. Uh, a girl that I graduated with, this happened to her. Um, and she called me and she said, hey, um, I let my certification lapse. Now what do I do? Um, and I said, well, the standards have changed and you have to take the praxis again. Ah! <laughs> and, no! Yes, yes. And so fortunately for her, the standards in terms of coursework didn't change. Because when I was in school, chemistry wasn't required, statistics wasn't required. And so if, if you would let, if you let your, your certification lapse and those changes occurred, then you, before you even apply for certification, you're going to have to go take a statistics course and, um, uh, or a chemistry course. And so we, we know that our, our professors always said, don't let your certification lapse. Yes. And that's, that's, that's it. And so yes. there's lots of reasons for that. But um, so that's the CFCC. It's, it's the, the organizing body that helps us ensure that we are providing good services because we are holding the appropriate certification. Um, and so that's the first one that I want to talk to you about. The next one is um, something that most people don't think about, and that's the CAA. <clears throat> and the Council for Academic Accreditation, it is related to programs. So it's almost like the Joint Commissions for University. Uh, and, and we all know what joint commissions is for hospitals. And so the CAA is uh, a body that uh, is affiliated with ASHA, but it's a different entity. And it really makes sure that the universities in, uh, have all of the guidelines to ensure that students are meeting the CFC uh, standards. Um, and so that can get a little confusing. But I think the point that I want to make about the CAA is that externships and the supervisors that accept students make programs um, or allow programs the opportunity to meet the standards for accreditation. Because without uh, a variety of experiences for our students, um, universities can't be in compliance with accreditation. And so I think that that is really something um, that, that I want to hone in to, uh, to your listeners today. Um, it's so very important. So we have the CFCC that really dictates what students have to know and what we have to know for ma maintaining certification. And then we have the CAA, which is um, the, the, the academic body for the universities. And it, it ensures that the universities have adequate faculty, that the faculty have adequate um, education, um, that they have the adequate resources to support research. Um, again, joint commissions for <laughs> universities. Gotcha. All right. So, that's, Thanks for that alphabet soup, Pam. Yeah, blah, 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 right? Because I know that's what your listeners are, are, are tuning in for, okay? That's but, all right. But it, we're, we're going to get into the more exciting things here. Um, one of the things that, and, I, and on the show notes, I have put this, uh, I certainly didn't want to bore your listeners with a lot of standards. Um, I've given references for those. Um, but I do think that it's important for, 
for um, everyone to understand that um, I'm just going to read this one standard to uh, so that we can have an understanding for our conversations here that we're going to move forward with uh, an effective. This is standard three point uh, one uh, B for the CA. An effective entry level professional speech language pathology program allows each student to acquire knowledge and skills in, in sufficient breadth and depth to function as an effective, well-educated, and competent clinical speech-language pathologist, Um, one who can practice within the full scope of practice, which we know is getting broader and broader and broader. The education program is designed to afford each student with opportunities to meet the expectations of the program that are consistent with the program's mission and goals that prepare each student for professional practice. So that's a lot of um, academia, but I think the important Um, aspect is that we can't do this without uh, the help from community clinical educators. Uh, And I think your podcast does a really nice job. And we talked uh, about it on my last uh, uh, group uh, with my students that we can't do it alone. And it's, it's interprofessional education. It's interprofessional collaboration and taking students, even in the world of dysphagia is, is part of that. Um, universities can't meet uh, the CAA standards without ensuring that our students have these experiences. Let's see. One of the one of the other things that I put in here on the show notes um, is one standard for the CFCC, which is um, what the students need to achieve. Um, and uh, standard 4B relates to um, that the applicant for certification must have completed a program of study that included experiences sufficient in breadth and depth. Uh, to achieve the following outcomes. And so again, you can see that the CAA um, standards for programs uh, really collaborates and coincides very well with the CFCC standards. Um, So we have evaluation, we have intervention, we have interaction and personal qualities. um, And that is for every disorder that we see. So, you know, we're talking articulation, we're talking voice, we're talking fluency, we're talking dysphagia. Um, receptive expressive language, cognition, communication modalities, social pragmatics, and hearing. So all of those disorders, we're responsible for ensuring our students meet. So dysphagia is one of those. <laughs> all right. Okay. And we have a lot to, we have a lot to teach. Um, yes. So one of the revisions that I think is important for supervisors to be aware of that Um, will indicate that students are coming to them with a little bit more experience is that universities are now um, uh, provided the opportunity to allow students to gain clock hours for simulated experiences. So um, 20% or 75 hours of the student who's applying for certification can have up to 75 hours of uh, direct client contact under simulations. And how that um, affects the the extern uh, supervisor or the clinical educator is that universities are provided opportunities to allow students to get um, experience with patients, simulated patients with dysphagia. So they're they're coming to them with with not just having a dysphagia course, but um, simulated cases with patients who have dysphagia. So it is, it is awesome. Can you kind of explain that a little bit more, Pam? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so at Marshall, um, we have a couple simulated cases. Um, One, we use SimuCase, which I'm sure you, you're familiar with, um, which is an amazing um, uh, addition to a lot of academic uh, programs. And so we, in my dysphagia course this summer, uh, we used, there were three different cases through SimuCase. Um, one was Joseph, um, and Joseph was um, a, a young gentleman who had a total glossectomy due to cancer, uh, and so it allowed the patient, our, our students to experience a person who has no tongue and what that, what that means for his swallowing <clears throat> as well as his speech. And I think the, the unique thing about SimuCase is um, they have, uh, Clint at SimuCase has provided so many wonderful resources for faculty for teaching the students. So it's not just that students will, will log into SimuCase, they'll go through the assessment uh, portion, they'll make goals, they'll, they'll talk to collaborators and come up with a diagnosis, but it's really important for the faculty member to debrief, um, to do a pre 
a, a pre-brief, a debrief, and really um, supervise them in their understanding of that case. And that's how semi-case works, is that this, the faculty member um, must have a kind of a pre-planning meeting with the students um, after the students have met um, the requirements um, and achieved a certain amount, uh, a certain percentage on their assessment, um, then the faculty member debriefs. What were the goals? Um, why was it appropriate to talk to this, this professional? Why was it not appropriate to talk to this professional? Why did you get points taken away from, from your score because you asked this question? And that's the great thing about SIMU case is that there is a learning module and an assessment module. So students, if they're in the learning module, can go in, they can ask a, a dietitian a question. If it's, if it's an inappropriate question, SIMU case is going to give them feedback why that was inappropriate. Um, so it's like a low risk. They're, they're learning about what's right and what's wrong, but they're not affecting a patient and they're getting right. immediate feedback. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, we use Joseph. Um, there is a, a, another gentleman with, uh, I think his name was Jim. Um, and he was 10 years post brainstem stroke. Uh, and so he clearly had speech uh, deficits and he, he definitely had swallowing issues. And our, and Simu case really indicated that um, he wasn't a candidate for speech therapy. And I think our students were really shocked by that because he clearly has, he has a feeding tube. He's NPO. Why, why can't we be wrecking? Why can't we be working with this gentleman? And so that was a really good learning opportunity for them. Um, and again, they're getting those experiences before they go off campus. Um, what was Simu case wrong? You think? Um, we had a long talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 and I think a lot of, uh, I, I think that there are some things on Simu case that we could debate and that might be yeah. something we talked to Clint about one day is how can yeah. we, may, maybe we could uh, form some, some debates on this. And, and, and we certainly had that in our class. Um, you know, he was coming as a second for a second opinion. And so we had a long conversation about the importance of second opinions, um, but also valuing um, another person's perspective um, without automatically saying, I can't believe they didn't recommend therapy. Why couldn't, why wouldn't they recommend therapy? Because we get those, we get those patients all the time. I know you've talked about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I often get families that will say, you know, they, they told us that, you know, he's never going to eat and we just should continue to, to give him um, tube feedings. And, um, you know, of course my, my heart and, you know, my intuition says, oh, I can make a difference, bring him in here, you know, but I, right. I, I do think that, that sometimes we're quick to judge other professionals uh, opinion Absolutely. and professional uh, uh, judgment. And, and so I, I think that we, we, in that, in that context, we had a long conversation about what does a brainstem stroke look like 10 years afterwards. Um, and they were really good about pulling in um, information they'd learned from their aphasia class and what they know about spontaneous recovery. Uh, and at our university, we have what's called an aphasia group. And there are some gentlemen in there that have been in that group since I was in school. Yeah. And so, and they're still making progress. And, and so, yeah. you know, the students are saying, why not? And, and so it, it, it case allows those serious conversations to happen. And um, sometimes there's not a right or wrong answer. It's just um, the answer that you can justify. And yeah. so we, we talked a little bit about that. Um, so yeah, semi cases, and there's also a pediatric case on there. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that Clinical educators should be aware that just because students have never been in the world of dysphagia, they have the opportunity at their university to have some simulated experiences with patients with dysphagia. Cool. Um, also, another example of a simulation is um, through our IPP uh, and IPE program. Um, we have, um, and I think we talked a little bit about this on our previous podcast, we have eight different disciplines that come together within the College of Health Professions School of Medicine, and we develop a case. Um, and so our case is a, is a patient who's had a stroke uh, and swallowing problems, as well as aphasia. And so again, they get clock hours for working with a standardized patient who comes in, who has been trained amazingly to um, present as someone who's had a stroke and can't eat um, and so uh, or is on, on a modified diet. And so again, students are now coming to externships with some of those simulated cases. And so I think that's important to know that they're not, not just a blank slate. Um, okay, so uh, I think we've talked a little bit about the 
background for students and the CFCC, uh, the background for programs, uh, which is the CAA. But I'd like to kind of get to supervision back background. And um, historically, there have not been any standards, competencies, or governing body to ensure that SLPs are competent clinical educators. And that's kind of shocking. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, we need this. Um, but it- And I, you know, like, don't want to judge my colleagues here, but I think I know that that's what a lot of professors and a lot of clinical supervisors, that's kind of their strife with sending their students out into the quote unquote real world is you don't know what you're going to get for a supervisor. And, you know, some of these supervisors are teaching practices that have been out of date for 30 years and they're hesitant to send their students to those types of supervisors. So, you know, what can we do to make sure that our students are getting the most, you know, up-to-date evidence-based treatment experiences and not being thrown back into the stone age. Exactly. Well, and even on top of that, Teresa, you can have some amazing SLPs out there who are not doing practices from the stone age that are actually very innovative and are, um, you know, working from an evidence-based uh, triangle, but they're terrible supervisors, uh, yeah. meaning they, they, they're great at what they do, but they don't know how to teach it. They don't, yeah. they don't know how to provide feedback. Um, and students walk away with a, a feeling of, wow, she's a really good SLP. I'm never going to be able to do that. <laughs> and so not only do we have people who are, um, you know, maybe not doing what they should be doing because, you know, they haven't been updated on the literature, um, but ones that are just amazing, but just don't know how to supervise. And so yep. um, this is changing. <laughs> and this is good. Probably, All right. Yeah, good, good, yeah. good. So this is probably the most important takeaway from the mo- this mo- the podcast here is that SLPs and audiologists must begin to participate in formal clinical education training because it's going to be soon mandated. <laughs> so um, I-, I think that in preparing for this podcast, uh, I was looking at some additional research um, and uh, Gorsuch in 2013, he-, he presented teaching dysphagia skills to graduate students, experiences with a competency-based program. Um, and some of the things that he pointed out was, you know, we know that students have deductive knowledge. They know, they know what they acquired in the classroom. And um, we know that uh, we need to have inductive knowledge. We, know, we need to know how to do that. It's just like your fees. How, you know, you can go to a fees training, but in, it's a skill. <laughs> it's yeah, a skill yeah. and you can know, you could take a test on fees, but until you pass the scope and you have that, you have developed that skill, you, you, you can't be a fees uh, uh, endoscopist. So um, one of the quotes from his research uh, uh, I stole and he, and this, this person indicated the off-campus supervi- supervisors wanted foundational level dysphagia skills at the start of an internship due to time and productivity pressures. But we felt it at the university hard enough to address the knowledge-based competency as part of the class. Um, and I think that, that that is definitely true. Uh, having taught the dysphagia class, there's, there's just too much out there. I mean, I was, yeah. I was talking to a colleague. We, we, we really need to have uh, a basic dysphagia course an advanced dysphagia course and a pediatric dysphagia course. We have yeah. enough content to really to, right, right. To teach that. Right. Um, I, I don't wish to be you dysphagia instructors. I, I, there's just so much to teach. And, and I know that that's, you know, it's like, why don't they learn this in grad school? And it's like, because there's 2 million other things they have to learn in grad school. <laughs> right. Right. But, but I do think that there's a, a, a place for us to meet halfway. And that's, I'm going to give you some examples um, of maybe awesome. some strategies that some clinical educators in the community can, can think about as well as those that are working and fighting the same battle that we're fighting at Marshall and making sure that we're preparing our students for right. this population. Um, but to get back to the requirements and the guidelines, there is a timeline for a phased in transition toward a requirement for supervision training. Uh, and so what we're looking at, um, the Council of Academic Programs and Communication Sciences and Dor- Disorders, otherwise known as CAPSID, another very academic term that when I hear myself throwing that out, I'm like, that's not who I am. But yeah. CAPSID is amazing. Um, it is it is an organization that truly is focused on um, ensuring that university programs have um, 
uh, a community in which to um, collaborate and make sure that we are following the CFCC, following the CAA, um, and w- we have a common interest. And so the, the C- uh, CAPSID came up with um, a couple, uh, a main goal of ensuring that we have supervision standards. And so their phase one, which is 2016 to 2018. So those of you who are just hearing about this, you're already behind the times. <laughs> so we're going to catch up to speed. Um, ASHA and the CAA is working with the CFCC to develop, and they have developed a series of supervision uh, training courses. Um, they um, are also working um, to establish a specialty c- certification and supervision because, you know, I know everybody wants to go out and get that. You know, yes. yes. <laughs> there's something about saying I'm board certified in swallowing versus I'm board certified in supervision. That's but, all right. We, but, we need it. And I do think there's a lot of people that have this calling to do this. You know, like you said, you never thought you would, but I think as people get out there, it's like, I really wish I could help these students and help develop them and help move them along. I just don't know where to start. So this is a great place to start. (laughs) Well, and not just help students, but help, help, um, SLPs that don't think they can do it. I've got a a great example of, um, a former student of mine who is probably now one of the best supervisors we have. Um, and, and every time I send her a student, she will thank me that, you know, thank you for sending me this student. I learned so much, you know, even the students that were struggling to, to, to keep up with her caseload. Um, and, and she felt perhaps maybe they were missing some knowledge base. She was like, I learned so much about myself in helping this person who was struggling. And so I do think that it's not just about the student. It's, I think we can really offer a lot to, to SLPs out there. Um, Back to, to the, the, the phases we we we're in phase two, get getting ready to start phase two, uh, 2019 to 2021, um, which is really when the requirement for two hours uh, every three years uh, for professional development and supervision is going to be required. So I'm going to repeat that. In by 2021, as any SLP who takes a CF, a graduate student, or supervisors supervises an SLPA is going to be required to have two hours of um, uh, CEUs uh, for every three years um, that they apply. So this is going to be a requirement, um, which I think is really good. We need to have some standards for supervision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, I'm, you know, we're pretty pumped about that. Uh, another thing that's amazing is that CAPSIT already has those things out there for, for supervisors. So even if you're thinking, ah, I don't really want to be a supervisor, but you need CEUs, um, there are free CEUs, free webinars that you can participate in um, to begin to meet that requirement. Uh, and so uh, I know that SIG 11, Administration and Supervision, again, another, another SIG that people are just dying to get into. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it's worth it. Um, and um, they, uh, of course, they have CEUs uh, like any other SIG. Um, but CAPSID, have developed these modules, courses. Uh, they're provided at no cost um, to CAPSID member programs. So the university programs who are members of CAPSID, which most are, are provided uh, passwords and links to share these webinars with their community educators. And so it's not like you could go on and log on to CAPSID and then just go into the education courses. Um, you have to be provided that code by uh, an institution, which again, I I think is a really nice way that they set it up because then it forces people to collaborate. (laughs) So universities really need to be sending these codes out to people to say, hey, I know you haven't ever supervised, but I'd love to get you in, um, in my, you know, my list of my pool of people. Um, Here's some free free CEUs uh, because most universities can't pay 
yeah, their supervisors. So there's really like, what's in it for me? Well, we can offer free CEUs. And um, so if you haven't done that, as if you're in the university and you haven't distributed those codes to people, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Um, if you are listening and you think I need free CEUs um, or I'm, I'm interested in making sure I have this uh, certification or I've, I've met this CEU minimum uh, in, in 2021, reach out to your university. Um, the code is given to your chair or your clinic director, <clears throat> and then they decide how to distribute that. Cool. So do that. All right. Connect with your universities. Um, ASHA also has professional development uh, supervision courses that are free. And so I've provided that link on the show notes as well. Okay. Um, so I think that that is um, something that everyone should be aware of. Uh, so we talked about CAA, CFCC, uh, CAPSID. Um, I want to talk about uh, the benefits of becoming uh, a clinical educator. Why does anybody want to be a supervisor? <laughs> What's in it for me? Well, I don't have time for that. Um, lots of benefits to students, we know. Um, I think one of them is the perception of collaboration. And I think you've mentioned it before. You know, what ha- here we have the university over in this silo, and then we have the real world over here. Um, I-, I think it's really important that the perception or the reality of collaboration, that students learn the value of researchers, instructors, professors, on-campus clinical educators, and SLPs practicing off-campus so that they understand that we're all collaborating together. Um, They develop connections to the evidence-based triangle using all of their professional resources, Um, and this evolves into into more of a professional collaboration rather than what is happening again in the real world versus what is happening. What one of my supervisor likes to call the fishbowl. He calls the yes. university the fishbowl. Yes. <laughs> you know, universities really need to be fighting not to be called the fishbowl. Right. Um, um, uh, it also teaches accountability and professionalism to students. Um, every experience I tell my students is an interview. Students begin to develop an understanding that their performance in the classroom provides a reference as well as the experiences and externships. Uh, I think when students know that all professionals are collaborating, they're more likely to always have their A game on and this practice becomes permanent. Uh, I I know that um, we live in a relatively small town, Huntington, West Virginia. And so uh, a lot of the the SLPs that are here are graduates of our program. Uh, Not all, but some. And some who come to Huntington, believe it or not, actually end up staying. And so everybody knows everybody. And so students learn very quickly that everything that they do here is um, uh, an interview. And uh, I think when they when they have a a bigger pool of professionals to lean on as mentors through that collaboration between externships and universities. Um, it, it just lifts them up to practice uh, at the top of their game. So um, another benefit to students is as more SLPs begin to volunteer for supervising, students gain a wider variety of clinical experiences. It goes back to the standards of certification. We have to make sure that they achieve that. Um, and so, you know, it, it allows the CAA and the CAFs, the CFCC standards to be met. Um, but ju- it just uh, improves the profession as a whole. So there's, we know there's lots of benefits to students. <laughs> I know I, I, I supervised a student a few years ago and I, you know, I try to take everything positive that I could from the situation and <laughs> it just ended up that she just wasn't cut out for the medical field. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, I it think is. you might as well figure that out when you're in grad school mm-hmm. than when you're out working and you're actually treating this patient on your own. And, you know, you're supposed to be getting paid for doing that and you're not doing the right things and the patient's not benefiting. I think it's just a whole kind of firestorm when you're actually are in that position as opposed to as a grad student, that's the most, or as a CF, that's the most perfect time to you know, have these experiences. So absolutely. And something I always tell my clinical educators, uh, particularly when it comes to writing final avows for students, because nobody likes to do that. When it comes down (laughs) to the grade, nobody likes to do that. Even people at the university, we don't like to do that either. Um, But some of the things that I always tell them is to even, you know, don't focus just so much on your setting, but give them feedback that they can take with them wherever they're going. 
So even if it's just those basic professional skills, uh, you know, you talk about your student, <clears throat> excuse me, who wasn't cut out for the medical field. What yeah. would you take with her from her experience with you to apply in the school setting or yeah. to apply in, you know, home health or yeah. apply in different settings? Um, you know, because I think if we, if we continue to just say, this is what you need to know about the schools, this is what you need to know about medical. Now, I, there are, there are certain um, aspects of both of those settings that we students need to know, but if students can take what they learn from each setting and apply it to the next, that's where, um, you know, the feedback is going to be very, very important and yeah. going to be applicable. Yeah. Um, so we know about the benefits to students. What are the benefits to clinical educators? <laughs> this is where we really want to hone in on university resources. Um, and, and it's not that we're all that. It's just we have state funding um, yes. and we have accreditation standards to meet. Therefore, sometimes we are thrown money be- to meet those standards. Um, so we have resources. University um, can provide um, lending libraries. They have lots of lending libraries, um, testing materials. Any, any um, SLP who takes a student from our program, they um, are given access to any of our test materials. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And so universities are given free stuff all the time. Now we, we pay a lot of stuff too. Um, but so, you know, it's not uncommon that we have people say, Hey, I don't have this test. Can I come check out your test and use it for my patient? Um, and so that's a benefit to having um, a supervisor or, or accepting a student. Um, and unfortunately, we don't do that for everybody. So you have to take a student to do that. We have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. Um, or we've even had uh, some uh, uh, SLPs say, hey, I'm thinking about ordering this test. Not so sure it's going to be the best for my, my caseload. Can I test yours out for a while? We check it out. And so, again, the university has resources. Um, not all universities are CEU providers, but we happen to be one. So again, connecting with your, your university, um, is, is a way to get CEUs. Um, and then referral sources. Um, you know, most universities have a university clinic and, um, uh, a lot of the agent agencies outside will refer to us and we will refer to them. Um, and so I think the more collaboration that you can get within your university, it, it, um, it allows better services for the community. So if we can't meet their needs, who can, and we're going to make sure that we know who that, who those individuals are, who, um, are trained in certain, um, certain strategies or certain techniques, um, advocacy, um, Who's got time for that, right? Obviously right. you. Right. Obviously you. <laughs> I have all the time in the world for it, Pam. What do you want to talk about? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying it's one of those things that practicing SLPs don't have time for a lot of time. But absolutely, are amazing at developing advocacy materials for your absolutely. family, your patients. So collaborating with professors, teaching classes um, can be a resource. You know, I've taught courses that um, have community-based learning or service learning. Um, And so the idea behind those courses is that students are going to learn about the content by giving back to to, uh, uh, an agency. And so we're going to put them in an agency. We're going to let them develop some materials that's going to benefit the, the, the facility. So don't ever be afraid to say, hey, while you're here, you know, you take a student and while you're here, I want you to put together X, Y, and Z pamphlet. Um, I know a lot of univer- or a lot of uh, facilities or organizations that require their students to do some type of presentation at the end of their externship. That doesn't have to be a requirement, but it can be a requirement if that's what you so choose. Um, so make it beneficial to you. Tell the student, tell the university, if you're going to send a student, this is what my expectations are and this is what my, need- my needs are and I, I need them to do that. Um, and I and- think those are almost partnerships that I hear are the most beneficial because it really invests the student in that setting like oh they really want something from me and I can really be valuable and really be a contribution to this place you know and the SLP is expecting something from that student so I think those are a lot of the I you know you don't want to say oh I'm going to make my student do this big project but don't look at it like that it's a mutually beneficial approach I think. Absolutely. We just came off of, we had our cohort, our cohort graduates in August. So I know a lot of graduate programs graduate in May. Our, our, our 
cohorts graduate in August and they just presented their capstones. And that's what it oh, is. Cool. It yeah. is something that um, they have worked with their, their externship uh, supervisor, their facility, what they want, what they need. Um, and um, honestly, Teresa, the things that they came up with, that they can be marketed. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's yeah. my favorite day of being at the university is to see yeah. these students, some which I've known since they were freshmen. There were so many of them on dysphagia this year. We, we usually have it uh, across multiple disorders, but this year's capstones were a lot about dysphagia. That's great. Um, one, of, <laughs> one of our students uh, came, uh, her, her facility was not using the Yale Swallow Protocol. Okay. So her supervisor asked her to put together what that would look like and the steps involved in implementing that at their facility. Because, you know, she's got time for that. Um, right. And the student did it. And it was brilliant. Absolutely awesome. brilliant. Um, another one was um, about oral facial myology um, because that's a certification and yeah. her supervisor is trained in that. But again, she put together something to explain what that is in layman's term for parents, okay. which again was absolutely amazing. And now that that supervisor has that information um, to use um, uh, from here on out. Yeah. Um, one of my other favorite ones, I'm pull, looking through my screen here because they were just amazing. Again, this is a benefit to supervisors. Uh, one student put together uh, a handout and a brochure for the, the benefits of a blenderized diet for G-tube feedings. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, again, uh, that's something that is, is talked about. It's, it's not just formula anymore. What can we right. do to get real food in the gut of someone who's not eating orally? And so I think that, again, benefit to supervisors, students yes. can give back. They right. are amazing. And you're right. It's not about, oh, what can I make the student do? How can I make, how can I, I help the student learn more and be empowered? They actually have the resources to, yeah. to do this. They, they were so proud of themselves and I was so proud Good. of them. I love that, Pam. That's fantastic. Um, of course, research. I know practicing SLPs. Yeah, we got time for that. But uh, a benefit to collaborating with your universities is we have IRB offices uh, and can assist you in developing research lines that might actually benefit your program by proving that you need a, a certain uh, piece of equipment or uh, proving that, um, you know, additional funding is needed for this program. And so don't be afraid to say, hey, I'd like to do some research on X, Y, and Z. Who at your facility can help me? Uh, who would like to participate in that? Because Marshall is not one, but some universities have research guidelines that you have to you actually have to meet a quota for that. And so don't be afraid to be that community SLP to say, hey, I can help you with that. And maybe you can help me too. So another benefit. Um, employment. Uh, we're always hiring. And so um, what better way to interview a student is to have them with you for three months. Um, And so there's no interview process. It's just the whole three months or six weeks or eight weeks or whatever. That's the best interview there is. And so, um, you know, always look at your, your future, uh, the future of your facility and the, the students and the future employees that you want, because um, in a world where we're using electronic health records, wouldn't that be great if the person that you hired already knows the system? Right. <laughs> right. They've been there. They know that. Right. Um, Let me ask you, Pam, do you, I know a few universities, I'm not sure if you guys do, but um, if they take a student, they will give them like a access password or something to their library system. So, you know, like, you know, how I would love to read this article, but how do I have access to it? And a lot of the universities have access to, you know, free access to PubMed and things like that. So I didn't know if that was something that your university offers to supervisors. I think some do. Yes. But it doesn't hurt to ask, I think. No, no. That's so interesting that you asked because just last year um, we had um, uh, one of our CEU events that we sponsored was about how to access research. And one of uh, the questions was we don't have access to that. If we're not part of the university, once we're not a student, we don't have access. We have access to ASHES journals or we have to pay for something. And so, yes, uh, as of last year, we started um, offering that to our supervisor. Awesome. Here's what I found out, though. Our university requires supervisors to provide their Social Security number. 
And a lot of our supervisors weren't willing oh to do God. that. I know. And so uh, there's always a catch 22. Right. <laughs> there's always a fiery hoop we have to jump right, through. Right. But we do offer that. And so anybody who's listening that's from our area or even not from our area that's taken a student of ours, um, please contact me because Marshall yeah. does provide that. Um, and um, we, we just need to have your your social security number. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> who, who doesn't in the world, yeah, you know? Really? <laughs> so great question. And that's so very important. The last thing that I want to talk about in terms of a benefit to supervisors is efficiency, which I know is people are going to say, what? It's, we're not going to be more efficient. But um, I, we all recognize that um, accepting a student does slow us down a little bit. Um uh, and the workflow is going to be a little bit more challenging, but they do have the potential to make you more efficient if you give it time. Uh, when you allow a student into your world, you allow a fresh perspective, innovative ideas, technology advances. Um, in the last podcast that we were working with, I was working on our reference list and students taught me how to use a, a click of a button to alphabetize my reference list. I had no clue you could do that. I was I like, didn't either, Pam. I, I was cutting and pasting. And one yeah. of my students said, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, we have to have this alphabetized. They said, you know, you can, there's, there's a button for that. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know. So, you know, I, that's such a good point. Cause even one of my business coaches, that's what he says is you have to, he always tells me, Teresa, you have to slow down in order to speed up, yeah. slow down and figure out what you want and, you know, communicate with your employees and things like that before you can speed up again. And I think that's so true with supervising students is yes, you may have to take some time to what their project's going to be, but in the long run, it's going to help you out 27 fold. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Um, and so I thought that was just a real basic example, but, but it, yeah. it, it was, it was, it was an aha moment for me because yeah. that saved me a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we've already talked about some examples of how we're improving student readiness for the world of dysphagia. Um, uh, we talked about SIMU case. Um, I've obviously integrated, uh, swallow your pride in my, um, my class. And so you're I, welcome, Pam. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'll have to let you know how my, 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 uh, student ratings are. This semester. Oh, good. <laughs> um, but, but I think what that allowed us to do is to make the connection between the academic world what what are what are students learning in class and what are they learning in the real world? It was a right. great bridge. And so um, it was just fantastic. Um, the standardized patients we've talked about, the graduate capstones we've talked about, SIMU case we've talked about. Um, another thing that we implicate is that are, are implemented was the MBS IMP. Okay. Um, and so our students are required to, to complete that um, uh, student certification. They're not certified, but they have to uh, achieve a certain level. Um, and I have gotten really positive feedback from our supervisors. Um, we have probably three or four hospitals that are using that. And the difference that they have said that's made in having students come to them with an understanding of the physiology and the, 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 the reports that they're writing, um, because they've, they've learned that in, in class. And so I would encourage anybody who's teaching courses, not just in dysphagia, but in anything to connect to those SLPs that are, that are uh, providing service provision for that population and say, what do students need to learn before coming to you? Because if we're not having that conversation, then we're probably li not just limiting our students, but we're limiting the amount of experiences they can have. Because if we make an effort to prepare them, um, then supervisors are going to be more willing to take them. Absolutely. And Pam, help, help me understand. I think, cause I know some people have said, well, I'm not, I can't make my grad student pay six, $700 to take the MBS IMP, but it's my understanding that there's like a student version they can take. There is, okay. there is a student okay. version. Absolutely not. We would not ever do that. <laughs> right. Right. And that's what some people have said to me and I'm like, but other schools are doing it. So I think there's a student version or something. Yeah. And I would be really impressive if I told you how much that was. I want to say okay. 68, 78, something like that. Oh God, that's wonderful. Um, okay. But it, it, it might even be 99, but it's, it's definitely, I, I, it's like a textbook. Okay. I consider it part of the textbook. Perfect. Um, and, and SIMU case is the same way. They pay it up front and every semester they're uh, provided opportunities within courses and within the clinical labs that we have 
for um, making the most of that money. So they're getting clock hours, they're getting clinical experiences from a awesome. simulated case. Um, but yeah. Yeah, but unfortunately, we do have to be aware of the, the financial burden that is placed on the student's back. Right, right. But I think a lot of supervisors have just automatically ruled it out because they thought it was the cost of, you know, the six or 700 bucks that it is to do no, it. No, no, but no, I'm no, like, no. no, there is a student one. So Right, awesome. absolutely. Uh, go for it. Now, I would encourage you to do the training before you implement it into your class. <laughs> yes. Because, um, the first year I did it, I was doing it with my students, which was hysterical. Yes. Um, I was feeling their pain. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, you know, that that's a good leader by example. Yeah. You know, I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not having to do myself. Yeah. Um, my last example of how we can improve um, student readiness is really listen to what SLPs are saying on why they're not taking students. Um, I have a, a supervisor who works in acute care, um, and she's amazing. And she is one of those fast walking, jumping from one place to another. And she, you know, she says, I need a student all day, every day. I, I don't have time for this half time. Um, I don't have time for, you know, you know, you know, three days a week. If you're going to send a student to me, I need them all day. And not all curriculums work like that and, and can adhere to that type of schedule. Um, it, but I think it's worth listening, listening to and, and bringing back to your faculty and say, OK, what can we do with our curriculum? Because they're missing out on this opportunity. Um, another thing that she said was students aren't coming to me with medical terminology. Um, they need a basic medical terminology course, specifically terms that are used in dysphagia. So obviously I could, I could present that information, but she's the one practicing. So this year I invited her to my class. I said, I know that you said that one of the things that you're concerned with, uh, for our students is that they're not coming with you know, what are the lab values I need to be aware of? What are some, some of the equipment that you see in the ICU that they, you know, they walk in the room and they don't even know what that is. Can you come and talk to them about that? Um, and so she came, she was brilliant. She offered so much more than what I could do in a lecture because I'm not seeing it every day. Um, and it allowed, hopefully what it did is allowed her to, to know that I was listening to what she said. And maybe my hope is that in the long run, if she continues to do this, she's going to realize that students are prepared because she's the one who's teaching them. Yes. <laughs> so oh, I love that. I love that so much, Pam. I know that's a huge barrier I is, and it's not even a barrier just for supervisors, but for SLPs in general, just being thrown into the medical setting and like, what is this piece of equipment? I have no idea. Right, right. So. I mean, what are all the buttons? What are all the, the yeah. bells mean? Um, and so I, I think that's so very important. And that is just not something that we can teach in the classroom. Right. It right. just isn't, you know. Right. Um, so, uh, final thoughts, um, and I hope that Kay Toomey doesn't mind that I stole from her, <laughs> um, step-by-step process. How does dysphagia relate to supervision and how can I take the first step? Um, I did because I'm a pediatric feeding therapist, um, primarily, um, I stole from Kay Toomey, um, her sequential oral sensory hierarchy. Um, if you don't know that, um, they are, you know, the child will tolerate food, they, uh, in their environment, they'll interact with food, they'll smell food, they'll touch food, they'll taste it, and then finally they begin eating it. And so there's a systematic desensitization approach that she uses um, that I think has been very effective. Um, and so what I did was I took the world of supervision and I integrated it into her steps. <laughs> because, there you go. Because here I am. I'm a feeding therapist and I'm one who apparently is enthusiastic about supervision. <laughs> so I put the two together. Um, so our first step for supervisors is really just to accept undergraduate or graduate student observers. So you're not required to do anything, but just let them be your shadow. Um, you know, let them in your environment, tolerate them being around you, um, or even allow students that are there with the physical therapist or the occupational therapist to shadow you so that you're getting comfortable tolerating having someone else with you. <laughs> I know I get a ton of those. I get a ton of student observers. So yes, yes. yes. And, and, it's a and nice toe dip in the water. Yeah, it is. It absolutely <laughs> is. And there's no real responsibility involved there. Right. <laughs> um, the next step is interacting with them. Um, give some feedback to the university and begin to develop an understanding of the university, the university curriculum, ask questions, visit them. 
um, because quite often the changes that um, uh, universities make in their curriculum um, does have a, an immediate impact on the clinical experiences. And uh, according to CAA, universities are required to um, uh revise and look, uh, analyze their curriculum and make modifications. Um, and so be, you know, start interacting with the university a little bit um, and, and see what you can do to help them with the curriculum. Um, K2, K2Me's next step is to smell uh, the food. Um, so let's start reading some SIG 11 literature, uh, complete ashes free uh, supervisory module. It's really short. It's free and you get CEUs and you get, you know, your, 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 um, you start to, to smell a little bit of the supervision, supervision, uh, process. Uh, our next step is touching, uh, and touching requires a little bit more sensory desensitization. Um, uh, and that would be completing the supervisory modules provided by CAPSID. Um, these are not easy modules in terms of time, so um, it does take a good bit of time to do it, but there's a reason because they're so inclusive and they provide so many strategies for supervisors, and they're, they're a significant amount of, of CEUs. I think each one of them is six, and, and right now they have two different modules, so I think you get a total of 12 oh, CEUs, wow. which is not insignificant. Right, right. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, so that's our touching uh, step, tasting supervise on occasion, just one time per year with a specific level of student. I have a lot of supervisors and one particular agency who will only take students in their final externship. Um, and I have talked to them and convinced them, or I've tried to convince them that, you know, there are some strong uh, first-year students that are going to be better than any second-year student. But that's 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 a deal breaker. They have to have them in their final externship, and I respect that. And yeah. so on a rotation, I know that every summer I can I can at least send one or two students with them. Um, and you know they they it's a pediatric outpatient. They have P, PT, OT, and speech, and most of the kids that come are pretty involved. And so I respect that. Yeah. Um, and then the final step is eating, <laughs> regular rotation of students. And that, that would mean that you're open to supervising all levels of students, that you're collaborating with university and CEUs. You're maybe potentially helping assist a te uh, teaching a course or being a guest speaker in the course. Um, and maybe dabbling in some research with your supervisors or your, your, your faculty members. And so, um, so yeah, those are the steps to, to eating and supervision. <laughs> All right. I love it, Pam. This was fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you allowed me to come back on and, and um, um, be rather enthusiastic about a not so popular lackluster topic. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's, it's so important in our field. It's so crucial. And I know so many people just have gripes and complaints about it, and I'd rather give people some cheese for their wine. So there you go. Thank you. Thank you absolutely. for providing some benefits of supervision. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So. Uh, look at the hierarchy. Take one step at a time. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so, so much, Pam. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening. <laughs>